is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. As always, we want to thank you for being with us. And we're going to start out with our weekly wrap for the week. And the stock market experienced the mixed price action this week. Tuesday's trade featured a broad, sharp retreat in response to hotter-than-expected CPI, that's Consumer Price Index, which showed a three-tenths of one percent increase, and the core CPI, which showed a four-tenths of one percent increase for January, which also set Treasury yields sharper, high, sharply higher. By the end of the week, however, the major indices managed to win back a lot of that lost ground. The Russell 2000, for example, sank 4% on Tuesday, but only settled 1.1% higher on the week. The market cap-weighted S&P 500 declined 4 tenths of 1% this week, but the equal-weight S&P jumped 7 tenths of 1%. We had only four of the 11 S&P 500 sectors that closed lower than Friday, when, when five, while five of them climbed up more than 1%. The heavily weighted information technology sector saw the sharpest drop, down 2.5%, followed by communication services sector, which fell 1.6%. On the flip side, the materials were up 2.4%, and energy was up 2.2%, and those sectors saw the biggest gains. The stock market was not spooked by this week's state's slate of economic data, up, holding on to or hope that inflation will continue to go the market's way, the microenvironment will remain strong and that the Fed will cut rates sooner rather than later. In addition to the hot CPI reading, market participants also digested a below-consensus retail sales report on January, an unexpected drop in jobless claims to 212,000, and a hotter-than-expected PPI report for January. The two-year note yields settled 15 basis points, that would be 0.15% higher this week, to 4.65% in response to this week's data, and the 10-year note yield rose 11 basis points this week to 4.3%. Coming into the week, there was growing sense among some participants that stocks were overbought in the short term and due for some consolidation. The market has been on a huge run since late October, and had the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average near all-time highs coming into the week. The move off of late October lows has been placed, paced by gains in the mega-cap space, so it makes sense that some mega-caps suffered outsized losses this week due to profit-taking activity. The mega-cap growth ETF logged a 1.4% decline. Amazon and Microsoft were losing standouts in the mega-cap space, dropping 2.8% and 3.9% respectively. Amazon and Microsoft are still up 116 and 7.5% so far this year. So looking at some of our market daily summaries, we found that Monday it was a strong day for the market. Many stocks finished higher as evidenced by the positive bias in the market breadth. Advancers led decliners by a 7-2 margin at the New York Stock Exchange and a 2-1 margin at the NASDAQ. The Dow Jones Industrial Average saw a 3 tenths of 1% gain, marking another record-closing high, while the Russell 2000 jumped 1.8%, continuing its recent outperformance. Meanwhile, some mega-cap stocks succumbed to profit-taking activity, weighing down the S&P 500 by a tenth of 1% and the NASDAQ by three-tenths. Amazon and Microsoft were among those most influential losers. Uh, semiconductor stocks also rolled over for, from early strength, uh, adding downward pressure on the major indices. <clears throat> the rollover action seen was related to the market's growing sense that things are due for a pullback. Still, the rest of the market, aside from the semiconductor and mega-cap stocks, continued to show nice resilience to selling efforts. The energy sector was a top performer, gaining 1.1% due to a huge gain in Diamondback Energy following news that it plans to merge with Endeavor Energy Resources in a $26 billion cash and stock deal that is inclusive of Endeavor's debt. So looking at Monday's economic data, the January Treasury budget showed a deficit of $22 billion dollars compared to a deficit of 38.8 in the same period a year ago. The deficit in January resulted from outlays of $499.3 billion 
That exceeded receipts by $477.3 billion. The Treasury budget data is not seasonally adjusted, so the January 24 deficit cannot be compared with December of 23 deficit, which totaled $129.4 billion. The key takeaway from this report is that the outlay for net interest in January exceeded the outlay for national defense. That's reflecting the owner's impact of higher interest rates and the increased insurance to fund the government's chronic budget deficit. I'm going to spend some time talking about that particular topic in depth here later today. On Tuesday, the stock market experienced a broad retreat on Tuesday as participants reacted to the latest inflation data. We had a hotter-than-expected CPI, which increased three-tenths of 1%, and core CPI was up four-tenths of January that fueled selling interest for both stock and bond markets. Ultimately, the S&P 500 fell 1.4%. The NASDAQ Composite registered a 1.8% loss, while the Dow Jones Industrial Average sank 500 points. The Russell 2000 lagged relative to other major indices, dropping 4% due to weakness in regional bank shares that fell under renewed selling pressure after recent rebound action. The weakness also left the Spider S&P 500 Regional Banking ETF with a 4.2% loss. Small cap underperformance is also related to worries about growth in high interest rate government. Tuesday's robust selling activity left 10 of the 11 S&P 500 sectors down at least 1%. So looking at Tuesday's economic data, we saw that the January NFIB small business optimism was at 89.9. A month ago, it was at 91.9, so a slight drop. We also saw that the January CPI, which I mentioned earlier, was up three-tenths of 1%, a month ago up two-tenths of 1%, and core CPI was up over 0.4%. The key takeaway from this report is it gives Fed officials an argument to maintain their hawkish rhetoric and delay the discussion about initial ta- rate cuts. On Wednesday, the market had a solid showing following Tuesday's post-CPI retreat. The Russell 2000 outperformed its peers, ultimately closing with a 2.4% gain following the 4% slide on Tuesday. A late afternoon surge in buying left the S&P 500 at 5,000 with a 1% gain. At its session low, the S&P was testing Tuesday's closing level, but the index failed to slip below its flatline, inviting increased buying activity. In addition to the market's ongoing resilience to selling efforts, a noticeable pullback in interest rates and ongoing optimism about rate cuts stoked buying in the stock market. Wednesday's broad and orderly advance left nine of the 11 S&P 500 sectors higher. Lyft jumped 35% after reporting pleasing earnings and an expectation for its fiscal year 24 adjusted uh, earnings margin to increase by approximately 50 basis points. Lyft mistakenly noted in its earnings repress release, however, which increased was subsequently corrected, that it expected a 500 basis point increase. That left a little bit of a shock there. There was no economic data of note on Wednesday. Dick Downey here with you with Wealth Wake Up here live here on KGMI. We'll be back in a minute. If you're struggling with weight and frustrated with dieting each and every year, Mark Patrick Seminars can help. Join the over half million people who have attended Mark Patrick Seminars with great weight loss results. Mark Patrick Seminars will be in Bellingham on Friday, February 23rd. After this hypnosis, I want to eat good food. Since August, I can honestly say I have not had one potato chip. It was life-changing for me. And I don't think about desserts like I used to. Bridget, how much have you lost now? I had lost a total of 83 pounds. Holy cow. It's easy. It's fun. Very relaxing and very successful. And I would just say go for it. Early bird special only $49.99. Lose all the weight you want 100% guaranteed. Friday, February 23rd at the Holiday Inn and Suites Bellingham. Weight loss seminar at 5.30 p.m. Attend this program and find out how the power of hypnosis can help you achieve your weight loss goals. There's limited seating, so get there early. Learn more at markpatrickseminars.com. At the UPS Store, we know this upcoming holiday is when things can get busy for small business owners. Exactly. My to-do list and I don't take days off. That's why you can count on us to be open and ready to help with every small business need, whether it's packing and shipping or if it's just to check your mailbox. That's almost everything on my to-do list. My list and I can take the day off. Woo-hoo! Your local, the everything to help you be unstoppable store, the UPS Store. Be unstoppable. The UPS Store locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours may vary. See center for details. 
If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? No, it's just normal. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Not available in all states. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here on KGMI. As always, we do thank you for being with us. And we are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center next to Wilson's Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. And kind of had an interesting week. I um, did our show for Saturday and recorded Sunday's show Saturday night afternoon. Went to Seattle, caught a plane Sunday morning, flew down to Los Angeles, spent Monday and Tuesday in L.A. with LPL Financial. They had a... uh, meeting there on focusing on one of the investment strategy platforms that we hold our assets in. And we had a number of investment managers or investment companies that were there bringing us up to date on a lot of their different investment strategies and what they're doing and how they're investing their money for us. And obviously they want our business, but um, it was interesting. Came back uh, Tuesday night, actually got in about one o'clock Wednesday morning but uh, I haven't made a big deal of it, but we've been in the process of remodeling our office. It's been a kind of a drawdown experience. We started middle of December, so here we are, what, middle of February, I guess. So, uh, you know, a little over two months, uh, but we're getting done. We're getting offices put back in place, and we've got desks moved back now. I think as of last night, we had the last office reset again, had our had it all set up with the computers all back in place and what have you. It's got a few bits and pieces and back end of our office still back working on painting and getting that done. But we've had recarpeting and new flooring, et cetera. And with that, we're in a position now that we are actively looking for adding an associate or two. And we have the space to handle them as well as the operations person. And so uh, if you're an advisor out there that's got some experience in the business that wants to talk to us, why we would be glad to uh, entertain that conversation. And you can always call me again at 360-733-1200. Okay, I'm going to go on with this week's market wrap-up. Thursday was a very interesting day with a whole lot of economic updates So the stock market, though, saw ongoing rebound action, which began late Tuesday following the CPI-induced sell-off. Some of the heaviest stocks were left out, though falling under some profit-taking activity and limiting index-level moves in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite. Still, Thursday's upside moves left the S&P 500 higher than Monday's close at 521.84 ahead of the CPI report. The Russell 2000, which jumped 2.4%, also recovered all of its ground loss after sliding 4% on Tuesday in response to the CPI report. Losses in some of the heavily weighted names left the S&P information technology sector alone in negative territory at the close with a four-tenths of 1% decline. Cisco was another notable loser from the sector after reporting fiscal second quarter results, issuing a disappointing outlook and featuring a plan to reduce its workforce by approximately 5%. A slight moderation in interest rates provided a measure of support for the stock market Thursday, but Treasury settled off their highs, whether following the slate of economic reports. We saw that retail sales declined 8 tenths of 1% month over month in January. That followed a 4 tenths of 1% increase in December. 
Excluding autos, retail sales declined six-tenths of 1% month-over-month following an unrevised four-tenths of 1% increase in December. The key takeaway from this retail sales report is that it reflects a slowdown in spending in goods in January. Some brutally cold weather during the month will get some of the blame for the slowdown, but the excuse falls short as the primary driver, knowing that sales at non-store retailers, which is the bulk of them are online retailers, also declined eight-tenths of one percent month over month. An initial jobless claims for the week ending February 10th decreased 8,000 to 212,000. The continuing jobless claims ending the week of February 3rd increased 30,000 to 1.895 million. And the key takeaway from this report is that the low level of initial claims supports the economy operating in growth mode. However, the rising level of continuing jobless claims underscores a rising level of challenge in finding new jobs after a layoff. The January import prices <clears throat> increased eight-tenths of 1% month-over-month. If you exclude fuel and import prices, were up seven-tenths of 1%. Export prices also increased eight-tenths of 1% month-over-month. If you include ex- agricultural products, export prices were up nine-tenths. So the key takeaway from this report is that the deflation seen in year-over-year reelings, import prices were down 1.3% and down three-tenths of 1% if you exclude fuel, while export prices were down 2.4% and down 1.6% if you exclude agricultural products. The February New York Empire State and Manufacturing Index uh, checked in at minus 2.4, following a minus 43.7 reading in January. The dividing line between the expansion and contraction for this series is zero. So the February reading connotes an ongoing contraction, although a lot slower pace than what we had seen in January. The February Philadelphia Fed Index checked in at a plus 5.2. That's versus a minus 10.6 in January. The dividing line again is zero. So the February reading reflects also an expansion in manufacturing activity in February in the Philadelphia Fed region. Total industrial production decreased one-tenth of one percent month-over-month in January after a revised unchanged reading of uh, 0.1% in December. The capacity utilization rate was 78.5%. That versus 78.7 in December. Total industrial production was flat year-over-year, while the capacity utilization rate was 1.1% percentage points higher, or I'm sorry, below its long-term run average. The key takeaway from this report is the drop in industrial production in January was unduly influenced by weather-related issues, so the decline isn't necessarily as bad as the headline suggests. We also saw business inventories increase four-tenths of one percent in December. That was following a revised one-tenth of percent decline in November. And the NAGB housing index jumped 48 in February. That's up from 44 in January. And the EIA natural gas inventories showed a draw of 49 uh, billion cubic feet. That was versus 75 billion the week before. So on Friday, the stock market spent most of Friday's session little change from Thursday's closing levels. Stocks didn't have much of a reaction to another hot inflation rating in the form of the January PPI and another jump in Treasury yields. The major indices took a sharp turn lower late in the afternoon trade, however, ultimately closing near their session lows. There was no specific catalyst to account for these afternoon deterioration, which was relatively modest compared to Tuesday's post-CPI slide. Regardless of the late session slide, market participants were not spooked by Friday morning's economic data, holding on to hope that inflation will continue to go the market's way and that the microenvironment will remain strong and the Fed will cut rates sooner rather than later. So reviewing Friday's economic data, we saw that January housing starts at 1.331 million, uh, January building permits at 1.47 million. The key takeaway from this report is that weakness was concentrated in multifamily starts and permits, although single-family starts were down 4.7% in a disappointing development for an inventory-constrained housing market. We also saw January's PPI was up three-tenths of 1%, and January's core PPI was up a half. Prior was revised from minus one-tenth of 1% from zero. 
So the key takeaway from this report is a lot like the key takeaway from the hotter-than-expected January CPI report. Whether the market chooses to dismiss this report as a function of seasonal adjustment factors, the fact of the matter is that the Fed is not going to dismiss it and will see it as a reason to remain patient with respect to cutting rates. We also saw the February University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Report come out at 79.6. A month ago, it was a 79. The key takeaway from this report is that consumers are feeling better about the economy with inflation pressures easing and the labor market showing continued strength. So year-to-date, up through yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up 2.5% for the year. It was down one-tenth of 1% this week. The NASDAQ is up 5.1% for the year after being down 1.3% this week. The S&P 500 dropped four-tenths of 1%, but is still up 4.9% for the year. And the Russell 2000 index was up 1.1%, finally moving into positive territory for the year, being up three-tenths of 1% now for the year. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be back after a quick news break. Thanks for being with us. Dr. John's Auto Clinic, located in Bellingham on Kentucky Street, is here for your auto repair and service needs. Trusted and affordable auto repair in Bellingham for over 25 years. Ask about their oil change and maintenance inspections. You can hear Brian from Dr. John's Auto Clinic every Saturday on In the Shop on News Talk 790 KGMI. Or check out Dr. John's Auto Clinic at djautoclinic.com. And on Facebook for the latest in auto repair news. Dr. John's Auto Clinic, reliable, honest, and a part of this community for over 25 years. Join Windermere real estate experts Rick Todd, Julie Brown, and Lyle Sorensen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Seven things that movers hate to move. Radio real estate. Number one is foam mattresses. They're heavy and they don't have handles. They make a bag that comes with straps to roll it up and carry it. There's the mattress hack. Brought to you by Windermere Real Estate on KGMI AM 790 and 96.5 FM. Streaming live at MyBellinghamNow.com. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Neater House of Luxury. Angel. Inspiration. Tireless. Just a few words used to describe Shelley Larson of Fairhaven. According to Jane, Shelley's friend, our community angel Shelley routinely prepares delicious and nutritious meals for Bellingham's unhoused. And when a neighbor needs more than food, be it a ride to the clinic or a loving safe haven for a pet, Shelley is always ready to step in to help. Dedicated to service joins Jane in recognizing a truly compassionate soul. Thank you, Shelley Larson, for your care and dedication to all our community members. Brought to you by Neater House of Luxury. Go see why they were voted best jewelry store in the Northwest. You'll find a beautiful selection of GIA certified and lab-grown diamonds, plus unique custom designs with an in-house jeweler. Find them at 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. KGMI has been the voice of our community for over 90 years, presenting the news and information that matters here, while also offering you the chance to have your voice heard. And that commitment continues. Start your day with the KGMI Morning News with Deanna Harrelock from 6 to 9. And don't miss your chance to voice your opinion on the news of the day with Joe Tian on KGMI Connects each weekday at 4. KGMI is your news talk station. The latest local news and important topics of the day. The West Mechanical Studio. No gimmicks, just the highest quality systems. 0% interest financing and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Rely on West Mechanical heating, air conditioning, and electrical. Contact them today at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and MyBellinghamNow.com. CBS News Brief. Right now in Munich, a meeting of world leaders is taking place, talking international security issues like the war in Ukraine. In a joint press conference with President Zelensky, Vice President Harris said... History shows us if we allow an aggressor like Putin to take land with impunity... They keep going. 
What happens now that a judge ordered former President Trump to pay nearly $355 million in his civil fraud trial? CBS's Robert Costa says. He will be expected to put up the money or secure a bond. And sources close to Trump tell me that process could be a real test of how much cash Trump has on hand and of his net worth. Residents of Guerneville, California, are nervous about more flooding as back-to-back atmospheric rivers come through this weekend. It's discomfort and stress. You know, uh, I can't change anything. CBS News Brief. I'm Stacey Lynn. And I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me. And I glad. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. You know, every week I kind of like to focus on a topic, and this week I'm going to focus a little bit on what the current state and trajectory of global population is. In November of 22, global population exceeded 8 billion people for the first time, making an astonishing eightfold increase since 1800. Prior to the mid-18th century, population growth and living standards remained stagnant for millennia. However, the advent of capitalism sparked revolutionary technological advancements, resulting in exponential gains in productivity, improved living conditions, longer life expectancies, reduced child mortality rates, and robust population growth. And while global population is still growing in absolute numbers, Population growth rates peaked decades ago. In 1968, global population growth peaked at just over 2% annually. It subsequently, though, has tapered off to approximately 1% today. So what lies ahead? Let's explore some of those insights. First of all, let's look at the top 10 economies of population growth. A country's population change is determined by births and deaths and people entering or leaving the country. Among the current top 10 largest economies globally, half are anticipated to witness a decrease in population by 2050 compared with their present levels. Notably, Japan is projected to experience an almost most substantial percentage decline with a drop of 17.1% over their 30-year period spanning from 2020 to 2050. In April of 23, India surpassed China to become the world's most populous country, a trend likely to persist as China's population peaked in 2021, and it is also expected to decline. Conversely, India's population is forecast to grow by 19.6% by 2050 compared to its 2020 figures. And here in the United States, it's expected to undergo a modest population increase of 11.7% during the next 30 years, roughly half the rate of the global population growth, which is projected to reach 23.8% over this same 30-year period. So let's also look at population growth by world region. Taking a broader view of population growth projections across global regions from 20 to 50, we observe growth in all regions except Europe, where a decline of 5.8% is expected over this period. Africa emerges as the most prominent outlier, promised, uh, poised for remarkable growth of 82.6%, elevating its population from 1.36 billion in 2020 to 2.49 billion by 2050. This surge is largely fueled by substantial increases in population in countries such as Nigeria. Their projected growth by 169.1 million. The Democratic Republic of Congo is projected to grow 146 or 124.6 million, and Ethiopia by 97.6 million. Notably, Niger is forecast to experience the fastest growth rate up 176 percent among African uh, nations with a population of 5 million or more, while Tunisia is expected to see the slowest growth at 18%. Meanwhile, Asia retains its position as the largest region, with the population projected to increase from 4.7 billion in 2020 to 5.3 billion by 2050. So let's look at global births and deaths per year as well. 
We have a change in global population is easy to understand. It's just the difference between births and deaths. But presently, the annual number of births exceeds deaths by a significant margin. However, fertility rates are declining across all regions. From an average of 4.86 children per woman in 1950, the global fertility rate has dropped to 2.31% in 2023. This shift, coupled with increased life expectancy, has led to a historic milestone. The global median age surpassed 30 in 2022 for the first time ever. Projections suggest that by 2086, annual deaths will outnumber births, meaning the global population is going to start to decline. So just some interesting numbers there. <clears throat> Let's also talk about flirting with the future. You know, this Valentine's Day, it highlighted the celebration of love and affection. The dating industry offers a plethora of apps and sites in an era that technology shapes numerous facets of life, we're finding that singles are willing to let technology influence their love life. We're finding that dating services worldwide, for example, in millions of users. 2018, there were 242 million users of the dating services. That's projected to increase. In 2028, over 10 years, almost doubled, 452 million users. But historically, matchmaking through friends and family was the standard way for couples to meet. However, since the early 2010s, online dating became the dominant intermediary in the U.S. And as I mentioned, men, the growth within the online dating industry has been steady climb since 2018. The online dating market generates revenues through two primary segments. One is subscription, which is 63% of the revenues, and advertisements, which is 27%. And an estimated global market of 10.5 billion in 2023. However, the global online dating market is estimated to grow at 7.4% annually through from 2023 to 2030 to approximately $17.3 billion a year. And while the North America currently holds a dominant share of the online dating market, international markets are showing significant growth. In India, for instance, increasing internet penetration and rising popularity of dating apps among the younger demographics are key growth drivers. In addition to moderate user growth over the last next few years, we believe the online dating industry has the potential to increase monetization of its new innovations. For example, some online dating companies plan to introduce gen, uh, uh, AI features, including interactive profile, optimization act, active conversation uh, starter prompts, and tools to increase relevance. So as we celebrated Valentine's Day, we are reminded that innovation touches all aspects of our lives, maybe even love. Kind of an interesting report. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about how the IRS taxes income. You know, it's important to know what common sources of retirement income are taxed by federal and state laws. And we'll find a quite a broad cross-section of things that we need to be looking at when it comes down to what is taxed and what isn't taxed. So we start out talking about navigating taxes and retirement, and of course it can be challenging. Your tax situation may differ from your working years due to income or tax bracket changes. If required withdrawals from retirement accounts and income from other sources can also affect your liabilities. But that's why it's crucial to know how common sources of income are taxed. Having this information can help you develop a tax strategy for your retirement years. So let's basically sit down and go through some of these in detail. Let's look at each level of income, starting out with retirement income. Is it taxable? Well, comprehensive retirement planning involves considering various sources of income, understanding how they're taxed at the federal and state levels. Thankfully, not all income is considered taxable income. For example, if you have life insurance proceeds, long-term care insurance payments, disability benefits, muni bond interest, alimony and child support are generally not taxable. Additionally, earned income in states with no income tax isn't subject to a tax at the state level. But still, your planning should consider the tax treatment of income from annuities, pensions, Social Security benefits, and retirement savings accounts. 
You also want to assess the uh, tax liability from various investments, earnings, and proceeds. Here's a different uh, breakdown of, of some of the common income sources and description of how, what, and how and what the federal tax implications are. First of all, Social Security benefits. Depending on your provisional income, up to 85% of your Social Security benefits can be taxed by the IRS at ordinary income tax rate. Now, I mentioned in last week's show that uh, there's a bill for Congress that's going to take that tax uh, burden, take that tax away. And, of course, I, for one, believe that it never should have been there in the first place because you pay tax on your Social Security. When you, pay, when you take that employer takes that money out of your paycheck every, every week or week, two weeks, every month, whatever, they are withholding taxes on that. So you've already paid. So they said, well, we'll tax 85% of it. Well, uh, again, depending on your income, up to 85% of your Social Security can be taxed. That could go away under this bill that has been proposed. And they make up for that bill. I mentioned it last week again. They're going to make up for that by taxing income above the current limits, up to up over $400,000, in fact. So uh, that's how they plan on trying to make up for it. But we'll see where that one goes because it's been, some, it's been submitted the last couple of years and seems to be making some headways. The second thing that's taxed is pensions. Pension payments are generally fully taxable as ordinary income less tax uh, unless you've got some after-tax contributions, which would be credited. You also have your interest-bearing accounts. They're taxed at ordinary income ta- rates, but municipal bond interest, for example, is exempt from federal tax may also be exempt in many cases from state taxes. Then we have the sale of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. We have long-term gains, which are held over a year, are taxed at 0, 15, or 20% capital gains rates. That's based on your income thresholds. Net investment income tax factors are, are, are in for some taxpayers at rate of 3.8%. Then we have dividends. Qualified dividends are taxed at long-term capital gains rates. Non-qualified div- dividends are taxed at ordinary income based on your federal tax bracket. And traditional IRAs and 401ks, contributions to traditional IRAs and 401ks reduce your taxable income. However, withdrawals are taxed at ordinary income tax. Required minimum distributions, which are RMDs from your IRAs, start at age 73, are also taxed. Withdrawals before age 59 and a half are also subject to that 10% tax penalty. Then we have Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, and contributions to Roths are, are not tax-deductible. However, individual withdrawals after five years following the first contributions are tax-free from Roth and IRAs, including gains. But retire, retire withdrawals before 59 and a half are also subject to that 10% tax penalty. Life insurance proceeds are generally not subject to tax when received as a beneficiary. However, if you surrender policy for cash, there may be tax implications if the amount surrendered is higher than what the premiums that you've paid. Savings bonds. Interest is generally taxable at ordinary income rates upon maturity or redemption, but may be tax-free for education expenses if certain conditions are met. Then annuities for a portion representing the principal is tax-free. In other words, the money you put in comes back out tax-free, but earnings are taxed at ordinary income tax rates and purchased with pre-tax funds. Home sales, your primary home, if you sell it, you have $250,000 a person, $500,000 for married couples is typically excluded from income tax if specific ownership and use criteria are met. So some interesting thoughts there. And then, of course, you have some states that do and some states that do not tax retirement income. You need to seek professional advidance, advidance on that because it could help make a difference. An article I was looking at here earlier, I don't forget to it now or in tomorrow's show, talking about movement of people around the country and how much movement is being influenced by state taxes. Um, but uh, it is always something for you to keep in the back of your mind when you're looking at making those moves. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be back in a minute. Pack your bags. It's time for fun in the sun with Barron Spring Break Getaway Giveaway. Any Barron purchase now through February 29th enters you for a chance to win. Whether it's a new comfort system, maintenance, or a tankless water heater, you could win a trip for four. Cabo, Hawaii, or cruising the Pacific. Picture yourself soaking up the rays with Barron Spring Break Getaway Giveaway. And that's not all. Save up to $7,000 on an energy-efficient Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump, providing year-round comfort that both heats and cools. 
plus it qualifies for the 25C tax credit. Or choose same as cash financing, install today and pay nothing until next year. Every Barron purchase could be your ticket to a dream destination in Barron's Spring Break Getaway Giveaway all February. And Barron's Silver Shield members get 10 extra entries. Not a member? Sign up today. Don't wait for that ship to sail. Call now. Barron, your full-service HVAC, electrical, and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. No purchase necessary. Visit BarronHeating.com for details. DeWard and Bodie's President's Day sale is on now with unheard of 0% financing up to 24 months on hundreds of select in-stock appliances and barbecues. Combined with huge manufacturer and energy star rebates, DeWard and Bodie will make sure you keep your cash and get huge presidential savings up to 50% off in-stock appliances and barbecues. DeWard and Bodie guarantees the best selection, savings, financing, and service in Whatcom and Skagit counties. But wait, there's more. DeWard and Bodie will pay your sales tax on qualifying in-stock appliances and barbecues. This is your chance to score special savings you won't find anywhere else. Need a new Tempur-Pedic? Get unbeatable mattress savings on a huge selection of beds at their Meridian Mattress Showroom and get free delivery set up in Holloway with qualifying orders. Upgrade today with no money down and no interest for two full years on qualifying appliances and up to four years on qualifying mattresses. Plus, shop in confidence with DeWard & Bodie's 30-day local price match guarantee on in-stock items. Visit DeWard & Bodie during the President's Day sale on now. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning As always, you've got questions for me Give me a call 360-733-1200 Well, I saw an interesting report come out here in the last couple of days I want to share with you Basically, it was five charts that show why Congress needs to stop deficit spending. What we're seeing right now is both chambers of commerce are locked in fierce battles over spending legislation. We have a supplemental package was found bipartisan support in the Senate after removal of flawed border and immigration provisions. However, its $95 billion price tag, $60 billion of which would go to Ukraine, means that there's still some stiff resistance to that bill in the House. Meanwhile, Congress is also working on regular spending bills known as appropriations that fund national defense and federal agencies. The most recent deal funds part of the federal government through March 1st. That's only two weeks from now, and the rest of it through March 8th. It remains to be seen whether these bills will be honest or loaded with gimmicks, such as phony emergency spending in an attempt to trick the public about what's going on. The spending bills aren't happening in isolation. Decades of budget gimmicks and spending sprees and handouts to different institutions have put America in an unsustainable position. And so I'm going to cover some of this information in some charts. First of all, let's talk about growing spending as a problem. If we go back to 1970, we'll find that federal revenues were about 17% of the gross domestic product. Today, they're only about 18.8%, so not a substantial increase in revenues. However, federal spending back in 1970 was about 20%, so we were running some small deficits. In fact, we actually got down in 2000 where we were actually running a surplus, and then it's been a fairly steady increase since then. But right, but we are projected, for example, by 2050, right or the uh, 2000 and um, um, yeah, by 2050, federal revenue will be 18.8 percent of the income coming in, but deficits will run to 27.9 percent of GDP. Now, the historical average uh, from 1968 to 2019 of GDP spending was 20.3 percent. So. We're seeing that almost a 50% increase over what has been historical levels. And while the federal government has a sorry track record for running deficits most of the time, that size of the gap is important. When deficits get too high, as is happening during the COVID-19 pandemic, it adds to inflationary pressures. And that's why we've had the inflation that we've had the last couple of years is because of that deficit spending. So if current trends continue, driven by the growth of spending as a share of the economy, deficits are going to balloon even in years without a recession or a major war. 
So going back and looking at the trillion dollar deficits that we've got, we see that only uh, not only are trillion dollar deficits now standard operating procedure, the government is set to track two trillion dollar deficits every year as soon as 2031 or even sooner if new legislation expands the swamp. So going back to 2023, our deficit ran at $1.7 trillion. That was last year. It is projected to drop a little bit this year at about $1.5 trillion. But by 2031, as I said, it'll exceed over $2 trillion a year. And by 2034, it's expected to exceed over $2.5 trillion. That is the deficit we're talking about. So let's take a look at public debt at World War II levels on a comparison. Years of hefty deficits have added to the national debt. Relative to the size of the economy, the public national debt is now nearly as large as it was during World War II. However, there's a vital difference between then and now. Once the war was over and civilization was saved, federal spending came down and the debt receded. So if we go back to 1946, we'll find that the public debt levels or deficit at that time ran 106% of GDP. But we'll also find that, for example, by 1960 through early 2000s, that that deficit level ran about a little bit less than between 50 and 60% of GDP on a fairly consistent basis. By 2024, this year, it's expected to be 99% of GDP. That means that the amount of debt will equal all of the gross domestic product that's in this country. And by 2054, it's expected not quite double, but be up to 172% of GDP. You're only talking 30 years from now. So let's talk about what the drivers are of growing spending. And when we look at the share of projected spending increases between 2023 and 2033, we find that in contrast, most current spending is on for categories where Uncle Sam has made up firm commitments to the future, such as Social Security, Medicare, and interest on the debt. In turn, these categories represent the vast majority of expected spending growth, which drives long-term debt and deficits. Both Social Security and Medicare trust funds are on a pace to bust within the next decade, a reality that most Washington would rather not talk about. And while there are ways to save money on these programs that would retain the core safety net aspect for seniors, addressing these imbalances is going to require political courage. So if we look at spending, 81% of the current budget is being spent on 29% on health care, 28% on Social Security, and 24% is for interest. All other mandatory spending is 9% and discretionary is 10% and dropping rapidly. So then let's also talk a little bit here about the interest cost on what it's costing us as a piece of this major debt burden. The growth in the national debt is an important factor behind recent rise in interest rates. The spike in interest rates is especially concerning. Incredibly, the Congressional Budget Office revealed that the federal government will likely spend more on interest payments in 2024 than on national defense. If debt and deficits continue to grow out of control, this will remain the case. Interest payments don't help protect the nation or fund public investments. Instead, they represent the bill coming due on big government spending from the past. If Congress remains asleep at the wheel, Rising interest costs will continue to snowball and threaten the fundamentals of our entire economy. Legislators will have to make important opportunities over the next few weeks to start the process of tapping the brakes on deficits. That means saying no to new deficit spending, which includes balancing any potential increases in one area with real cuts somewhere else. Getting rid of earmarked boondoggles that waste taxpayer money on political cronies and white elephant projects. Cutting subsidies of unnecessary government operations, especially those that are captured by, captured by activists. And while Washington's culture used to say easy money going to other direction was not be easy, however, it is absolutely necessary that America's fiscal health and prosperity. So looking in a little bit more detail of this chart, we find that uh, 
historically, net interest rates have run 2 to 3% of GDP, uh, or the primary deficit has run 2 to 3% of GDP. And we're finding that interest rates, of course, interest has continued to increase. So if we look at where we are now, for example, in 2020, the deficit get, went up to where it was almost over 12% of GDP. It went, it's projected to go down a little bit as far as the primary deficit, but then you're going to see that net interest increase increase. So that we're going to continue to see the percent of GDP of the primary deficit run around 2 to 3% of GDP. We are going to see a total deficit increase to 6 to 7% of which interest is going to be, uh, t- total GDP is going to increase to almost 9% uh, deficit of which 6 to 7% of that is going to be interest. So what we're seeing is, as this uh, continues down this path of spending, we're seeing that's one of the reasons we don't expect a big decrease in interest rates is because of the level of debt that we've got. Somebody's got to pay for that somehow, somewhere. you got to make it attractive so they continue to sell off those bonds, the Treasury bonds. It's going to be an interesting battle, something you need to be aware of, because this is not going to be an easy ride out this door. Dick Donahue, got to get out the door. Wealth Wake Up Live, thanks for listening. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. If you got questions, I'm sorry, tomorrow at 9 o'clock. If you've got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.